Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 3 today. We're returning to our series on 1 Peter. We're working our way through this New Testament book, one passage at a time. Took a little break for Christmas, but returning to this book this morning and today. Um, I have the great privilege of preaching from one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. Um, Martin Luther said this about this passage. He said, it is a strange text. It is an obscure passage, and I still don't know what it means. Martin Luther. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to improve upon Luther today. There's um, another theologian named Millard Erickson who, upon looking at this text, came up with 180 different interpretive options. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is going to be a challenge. But it's a good opportunity to remind us of our conviction about Scripture here at this church. We believe that all of the Bible is God-breathed, that all of the Scriptures are profitable for teaching and for training. And we also believe, hold very clearly or tightly to one of the major convictions of the Reformation, which is that Scripture is clear. And it used to be centuries ago that the average Christian wouldn't have possession of a Bible because the church believed that the average person couldn't understand it. But in the Reformation came forth this doctrine that actually we can understand the Bible. The Bible is clear in its fundamental basic message. That is that there is a God and this God created all things. And he created the world upright and perfect, as Larry reminded us. But we have rebelled against God. We've sinned against him. And yet God in his mercy and grace did not leave us in our sin, but he sent his son for us. He came into this world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life here. He went to a cross. He died on a cross. He shed his blood on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and now calls on everyone to believe in Jesus. And as we place faith in Jesus, we're reconciled to God, the Holy Spirit fills us, and then we're empowered to live on this earth as part of the church of Jesus Christ and expanding and moving forward the kingdom of God until Jesus comes again one day to make all things right and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the basic story of the Bible, and it is clear anybody taking the Bible seriously is going to get that message. But the fact that the Bible is clear does not mean that everything in the Bible is equally clear. Some passages are very puzzling, and that is the case certainly for this passage today. All sorts of different teachings have come out of this passage in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Some have taken this to say that uh, purgatory exists. Some have taken this to mean that there's a second chance for people to receive the gospel after they die. Some people have taken this passage to mean that Jesus descended into hell after his death on a cross. Some people have taken this passage to mean that baptism regenerates us, confers forgiveness on us, guarantees salvation to anybody who receives that sign. 
All these teachings have come from this passage, and we need to take some time here today to dispel some of these false notions. So, if you're visiting with us today, we're very glad you're here, but you're going to hear a sermon that might seem a little more confusing uh, than normal. But again, we want to take the Bible seriously. We want to take all of the Bible seriously. And actually, when you deal with a difficult text like this, it gives us an opportunity to learn some things about how to interpret the Bible. And you'll notice that as we go through this, as we wrestle with this, we're going to appeal, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to appeal a lot to other portions of Scripture to help us understand this passage. That's one of the basic tenets of good biblical interpretation. We allow the Scripture to interpret itself. And when we come to an unclear passage like this, we look to other passages that are clear and allow the clarity of other passages to inform our understanding of the unclear passages. So that's kind of some principles that we're going to be using uh, as we go through this text. So I'm going to spend a lot of time clearing up misunderstandings. Um, So, you know, let's put on our thinking caps and uh, get a Bible out. If you don't have it, please um, get one and take a look at this passage. This is uh, important so that we can keep our eyes on the text. I do have the passage on the screen if you don't have a Bible. So let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. First Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. God, we do ask for um, an even extra outpouring of your spirit to grant clarity to us, to clear away error, and to implant in our hearts and minds the truth of your word. Do that through the preaching of your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to begin this morning by looking at three views, three options that are often given for um, this phrase in verse 19, where we see that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's really verses 18, 19, and 20 that cause the most trouble for interpreters. So I want to give to you, to begin with here, three different options for how to understand that particular phrase. Again, verse 18, Christ alive in the Spirit, proclaiming to the spirits in prison. The first interpretation is this, that what is being said here is that between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he descended, 
into hell. So, again, if you look at verse 18, you'll see this assertion that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. That's his death on the cross, his body being killed, but he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus' spirit continued to live. And the assertion is that while Jesus' body was in the tomb, his living spirit, before Jesus' body was resurrected, descended, went down into hell, and then preached, proclaimed to people who were residing there. Now, you might recognize this from the Apostles' Creed. It's a creed that's widely cited in Christian churches. We actually don't recite it here. And honestly, it's because of this phrase, which I find problematic. The Apostles' Creed, here's just one portion of it. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, referring to Jesus. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Then it says, he descended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, there's different ways to interpret the creed as to whether that's what was actually meant by the creed. But some will look to this passage here in 1 Peter 3 and say, see, there's the scriptural biblical support for this idea that Jesus went to hell. And it seems to answer some questions that people have, like, you know, what was Jesus doing, after all, between his death and resurrection? His living spirit, what, where was he? What was going on? This seems to answer that question for some people. Others have questions about how people in the Old Testament were saved, and so they look at this text and they say, here could be an example of that. Perhaps those people were in some kind of prison, Old Testament saints, and before Jesus was resurrected, he went, descended into hell, proclaimed the gospel to them, and gave them the opportunity to believe. That's one option for this passage. Here's a second option. After Jesus' resurrection... He proclaimed his victory to fallen angels. Now, I was kind of surprised to find that this is actually the most popular interpretation among commentators and theologians today for this particular passage. That after Jesus' resurrection, he went to this place and proclaimed his triumph, his sovereignty, to fallen sinful spiritual beings or angels. Now, there are some... Um, reasons to be attracted to this position, and one of them is this, okay? We're going to allow Scripture to inform our understanding of other Scriptures. If we just go up to 2 Peter, we're in 1 Peter now. If you go to next, the next epistle, 2 Peter, we see that Peter says this, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and then the passage goes on. But you'll see here that Peter seems to have in mind this idea of angels sinning and being cast into some kind of prison-like place, chains of gloomy darkness. And so some say, you see, that's what Peter's thinking of, so that's what this interpretation should be. Also, if we look at ancient Jewish tradition, there's a book called First Enoch, and this book talks about angels who rebelled, who fell, and who were imprisoned in the earth. He even uses that term prison, which would match what we read here in 1 Peter 3, verse 19. So there's a lot more to be said about that, but um, those are some of the arguments for this second idea, that after Jesus' resurrection, he proclaims victory 
to the fallen angels. <clears throat> well, there's a third option. There's actually more than three. I'm just giving you the three main options. And I have this in bold italics to let you know that this is the option that personally I favor. And that is this, that before Jesus' death, long before Jesus even lived on this earth, his spirit preached through Noah to disobedient people. That, I think, makes the best sense of the context. This is the view that was favored by Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and um, many of the leaders of the Reformation. Um, just going back through these three, I, I, I don't believe that number one is a good option. There's no other biblical support for the idea that Jesus descended into hell, for one thing. But also, if you look at verse 19 and notice the word he went, do you see that? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that verb he went, it's just a version of the verb to go. There's another Greek word for descended that is actually used quite often in the New Testament and that Peter could have used, but he didn't. So this idea of descent just doesn't seem to be in view in this text. So verse one, uh, excuse me, option one, I don't think very good. Um, option two, like I said, is, is possible, but he, here's why I'm rejecting option two. And we got a couple seminary guys here, so maybe they've looked at this lately and can offer a, a challenge to me. But uh, here is um, the reason why I don't think option two is good. If you look at verse 20, notice what Peter goes on to say. These spirits, <coughs> these spirits in prison who received this proclamation for Jesus, they formerly did not obey. It says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So the question to ask there in verse 20 is, with whom is God being patient? With whom was he patient? And I think the answer is not angels. There's no indication that his patience is with angels. His patience is with those who did not obey. Those are human beings, people who lived on the earth, it says in verse 20. And if we think about the flood, again, as Larry so well reminded us before the confession, the reason for the flood was not angelic rebellion, but human rebellion. And we see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 6 here that I have on the screen. This is what precipitated the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And so God blots out creation through the sending of a flood. So those cause major problems for that second view that Jesus is going to proclaim victory to fallen angels. That doesn't seem to be in view here. It's rebellious, sinful human beings. So... What supports this third view that the Spirit of Christ went and preached to rebellious people in the days of Noah? Maybe that just kind of sounds strange to you because you're thinking, how did Jesus preach in the days of Noah? But notice it's the Spirit of Jesus, right? At the end of verse 19, um, excuse me, at the end of verse 18, 
put to death in the flesh. He's made alive in the spirit. So it's Christ's spirit in verse 19 that's going to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Now, already in 1 Peter, if we look back at chapter 1, you can turn there or look on the screen. The same book of 1 Peter, look what Peter says. He says, the prophets, that's the prophets in the Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this idea of the Spirit of Christ living in the times of Noah, or at least in the times of the Old Testament, has already been introduced here in the book of 1 Peter. And I think Peter is just picking up on that, continuing with that idea here in chapter 3 and saying that that Spirit of Christ, who spoke through the prophets, also spoke through Noah one day. That when Noah was preaching, when Noah was commanded to build that ark because the judgment was coming and he called on people to repent, it was the Spirit of Jesus Christ speaking through him. Now that gives us some instruction, I think, about how to look at the Old Testament. You know, some of us very easily dismiss the Old Testament. It's just like, well, the Old Testament is for, for the Jews. The Old Testament is for the Old Covenant, as if the Old Testament has nothing to do with the Christian. But what the Bible says is that it's the Spirit of Christ who speaks in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's the same God speaking through the whole Bible. And so we need to give our attention to the Old Testament as we do to the New. So here would be kind of the, the order of events. It, it would kind of move like this, because I think one of the things that confuses us when we see verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, we get this idea that Jesus went to this place and there was this prison, and inside the prison there are these spirits, and then Jesus is preaching to them through the bars of this jail cell to spirits who are incarcerated behind them. That's kind of the idea we get. But we don't have to read this in this way. We can understand the order of events to go something like this. The Spirit of Christ, living in the time of Noah, preaches through Noah, calls disobedient. Those who disobey calls them to repentance. They refuse to repent, and so the flood comes and destroys them. They are killed because of their refusal to submit to Jesus. They go to hell. And I think that's what's referred to here as the prison. The prison is referring to hell. It's the spirits of those who were disobedient in Noah's day, now in this prison. And so the idea here is not that Jesus is preaching to them while they're in prison. He preached to them years ago, and now they're in prison. So it would go like this. Spirit of Christ preaches through Noah. The people refuse. They die. They go to hell. Their bodies in the grave. Their spirits in this prison. So it, it would be like this. If you think about, if I were to say to you, Queen Victoria was born in 1926. I don't mean that when she was born, she was the queen. She was born in 1926, became the queen later. And so these spirits were not in prison when the Spirit of Christ preached to them, but they're in prison now. Now, it's a lot to take in, but that's the reason why I think 
this third option is the best. Before Jesus' death, his spirit preached through Noah to disobedient people. Now, let's think then, based on that, what is this passage not teaching? What should we not conclude from this? And I've already mentioned some of these, and I want to dispel those for you. First of all, this passage is not teaching that Jesus descended into hell, as the Apostles' Creed states. Now, I'm mentioning this because I want to make sure that we don't go too far and throw the baby out with the bathwater, because even though the Apostles' Creed is misleading on that particular point, let's not then go the whole way and say, therefore, all creeds and confessions are worthless, creations of man, and have no place in the church. The Apostles' Creed is largely a good creed. The Nicene Creed is a good creed. We recite that here often at New Life. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a good confession. The reason we have these documents is they articulate what we believe about the Bible. Lots of people, friends, say, I believe the Bible. The question is, what do you believe the Bible teaches? That's, that's a, just to say I believe the Bible begs a very large question about the details that are taught in the Bible. That's what the creeds and confessions allow us to articulate. You know, a Mormon would say, I believe the Bible. A Jehovah's Witness would say, I believe the Bible. Okay, you say you believe the Bible. Fine. What's the difference between you and a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon? The creeds and confessions allow us to articulate that difference. And so, let's offer the Apostles' Creed the respect that it is due, as well as the Nicene Creed, even though it might get this particular statement wrong, in my opinion. At the very least, uh, there's nothing in this passage in 1 Peter 3 that would support that. Second thing, this passage is not teaching purgatory. This doesn't even fit with the three views that I shared, but many will look at verse 19, this idea of Jesus preaching, proclaiming to spirits in prison, and say, here's the biblical support for purgatory. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, you you might understand something about purgatory. This is the idea that when a person dies, he or she goes to this kind of middle state between heaven and hell. It's a, a place where a person goes before he or she is admitted into heaven so that that person can experience at least some temporary suffering, some temporary punishment to kind of eradicate, forgive, get rid of, clean the person up before the person can enter into heaven. So some people look at verse 19. There's spirits in prison. See, these are people in purgatory, and they're getting cleaned up before they go to heaven. But I think that is not a good interpretation of this passage. And one of the ways that we can um, dispel that is by just going back to verse 18. Look, look, Look what it says in verse 18, the way this passage begins. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ has suffered once 
for sins. One time, his suffering on the cross, his death, his shed blood on the cross, one time is enough to forgive you of all your sins, to cleanse you before God. And he goes on to say, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one came and suffered for us. We're the unrighteous, but by placing faith in Jesus, his righteousness is given to us so that we stand before God righteous before his sight. There's no need for us to be cleaned up as Christians because in Christ we are regarded as holy, perfect, forgiven, pure, and fully accepted. And he goes on and he says this is all what? To bring us to God. That's why Christ suffered. That's why the righteous one substituted himself for the unrighteous. That we who were once far from God would be brought close to God in intimate, personal relationship with him. Not that we'd be brought halfway to God. Not that we'd be brought to a purgatory place where we'd have to wait to get, take the next few steps into communion with Jesus. We're, we're, Christians are brought into intimate, close relationship with God through the suffering of Christ. There's no need for purgatory if we understand the gospel in this way. Hebrews 9 says this, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin, all of it, by the sacrifice of himself. So we don't hold to purgatory, and that cannot be gathered from this passage. Here's something else that this passage is not teaching. This passage is not teaching that there is an opportunity to receive the gospel after death. There's a guy named Clark Pinnock and some others who hold this view. They call it post-mortem evangelism. It's this idea that God, being so full of grace, will even extend His grace to the dead. And so we have spirits who are in prison. Perhaps, some people say, these are people who rejected the gospel in this life, or maybe they're people who never heard the gospel. And now they're in prison, but what Jesus is doing, what God is doing in His grace is He's extending this opportunity to people beyond the grave to receive the gospel and be saved. Well, there's some problems with that view as well. One, we look at this passage, we don't see anybody believing the gospel. We don't see these spirits in prison believing the gospel. We don't see any concrete example of anybody being saved after death. We don't see that in this passage. But another problem here is that this is only referring to people who lived and died before Christ. It doesn't address people who lived and died after Christ, so it would leave that question open. What about them? But again, I think most significantly, if we look to other portions of Scripture, we see passages like this. Just as it is appointed for man, Hebrews 9 says, to die once, and after that comes judgment. We die and upon our death, we are ushered immediately into the presence of God, either as people who are in Christ and saved, or as those who are apart from Christ and condemned. 
The Bible does not hold out any hope that people who have passed on into the next life, that people are, who are dead will have some opportunity to receive Jesus. Friends, that is a false hope. I, I don't know if you've heard that. Maybe you're banking on that. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm just going to live my life as I wish, as I want, and I know God is gracious, and so I'm just going to hope that after I die, I get another chance. Friends, if someone's told you that, it's a lie, and it's a dangerous thing to believe. The time to believe in Jesus is now, today. Today is the day of salvation, right now. And you have the opportunity at this very moment. You can turn from your sins, believe in Jesus now, and be saved. Don't put that off. Tomorrow is not promised to you. And when your life ends, your eternity is determined and secure and irreversible, whatever it is. So it would be wrong to try to use this passage to present this idea that people have a chance to receive Christ after death. Okay, one last thing this passage is not teaching, and to get to this, we've got to move on to the second half of this passage. So I see, I think pretty much everybody is still with me. I'm very impressed. Um, thank you for your good attention. One last thing. <clears throat> that this passage is not teaching. We're shifting gears here, okay? We're going to get away from the spirits in prison stuff. Um, but the passage, you know, he makes this big shift. I guess, you know, this talk of Noah and the floodwaters makes Peter think of baptism. And so in verse 21, he shifts to talk about baptism. And we get that very curious phrase there in verse 21, baptism now saves you. Hmm. What do we do with that? <laughs> Particularly those of us who come from an evangelical environment, and we're told that salvation is through faith in Christ and Christ alone, but this says baptism saves you. What do we do with this? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I want to point out a couple things. Notice here how the Old Testament informs our understanding of New Testament baptism. You know, so many of us think of baptism as something that's only in the New Testament, and it is. It's not practiced in the same way anyway in the Old Testament. But here Peter is saying we understand some things about baptism based on some things that we learn in the Old Testament, right? Look at verse 21. He says it very clearly. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What's this? It's this idea that Noah was brought safely through the waters on the ark. There's something about the flood and Noah's Ark that teaches us something about baptism. Now, what is that? Well, I, I think it's this. It's, it's that baptism has this dual significance. It's a very, very powerful symbol. And it has this kind of twofold meaning. On, on the one hand, the baptism or water is a symbol of that which saves us, right? So that's what we learn here in this passage, verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Noah and his family saved through the water. Now, a little aside here, let me point something out. 
Do you notice that it's not just Noah, but it's Noah and eight persons. And who are those eight persons? That's Noah's family. Noah and his family were saved through the floodwaters. Peter says baptism corresponds to that. That's one of the reasons, friends, why we do household baptisms in this church and in our denomination. A lot of questions about why we do that. I think there's some biblical support for that here in this passage. So the waters, the flood waters, on the one hand, saved Noah and his family in the ark, but those very same flood waters condemn, judge, and destroy everybody else in the world. That's what happened in the flood. And so these waters have this dual significance. They save and they destroy at the same time. Baptism corresponds to that, Peter says. So what does that mean? I, I, I think it means this, and I don't think we often think of baptism this way. The waters of baptism are a symbol of salvation and freedom from sin, a symbol of freedom from the condemnation of God for those who believe. But for those who don't, for those who reject the gospel, particularly for those who are baptized in the church and then live their lives in rampant rebellion against God, that baptism will simply testify against them. That that baptism will be a symbol of their condemnation. Baptism corresponds to the floodwaters in that way. So that, that just changes perspective on baptism. And I think it eliminates this idea that, oh, when people say, well, people just, you know, if you baptize a baby or even if you baptize an adult, you might give them a false assurance that they're saved just because they're baptized. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Because those who don't repent and don't become Christians, their baptism is not a reason for them to think that they're saved if their lifestyle doesn't reflect one of obedience to God. It does exactly the opposite. So what do we do here with this phrase? Baptism now saves you. It, it, is it true, in spite of what I just said, is it true that if you're baptized, you go to heaven? The answer to that is no. I mean, if we just look back again, earlier here in 1 Peter 1, same Peter writing the same book, look what he says. Though you do not now see him, Jesus, you believe in him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Peter affirms salvation is through faith. He believes in justification through faith alone. Same letter. Here's what Peter says. Here's what Paul says. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 1. Christ did not send me to baptize. If, if just putting water on someone's head is going to get them to heaven, why would Paul say that? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is how people are saved. They hear the gospel with their ears. They hear about Jesus. They hear about their sin. They repent. They turn. They trust in Jesus, and they're saved. That's how a person is saved. That's what the rest of the scriptures teach us. So, what's going on here? Baptism now saves you. Well, let's go on. L look what Peter says, and I think he clarifies right away as the passage goes on. Saves you, not 
as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not the outward act of baptism. It's not the water itself. It's not the ritual. It's not the ceremony that saves you. Instead, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. The idea is that there's something inward that has to be there in the person who's baptized. That person has to have an appeal, a pledge, a request to God for a good conscience. That is a request that the blood of Jesus would forgive them so their conscience would be clear. Their sins would no longer be accounted to them and they'd be freed from that. When that attitude accompanies baptism, then there is assurance that a person is saved. But it's not the baptism itself. It's not the water itself that saves. Here's the way our confession puts it. And this is one of the values of a confession. and helps us think through things like this. But, but there is in the Bible such a tight connection between baptism and salvation that this, I think, is true. The confession says this. In every sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is a spiritual relationship or sacramental union between the sign, in this case baptism, and the thing signified, forgiveness of sins. And so the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Like, like Jesus in the Lord's Supper, he holds up the bread. This is my body, he says. Does, does he mean that that piece of bread in his fingers is actually his body? No, it's a symbol of his body. But the symbol is so closely connected to his body that he can say, this is my body. Or if I had a picture of my wife and I pulled it out and I said, this is my wife. Do I mean that that five by seven card that I'm married to that piece of paper? You know, of course not. But there's such a strong connection between the picture on the paper and my wife that I can say, and you would not argue with me if I said, this is my wife. And I think that's the idea that Peter has in mind here. Baptism now saves you, not the outward splashing of water on a person, but that which baptism symbolizes, the two of which are so closely connected. Here's kind of the takeaway. I would just say this very simply. I think Peter's making a big deal out of baptism here. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. If you know your sins are forgiven and you're right with God, what is keeping you from being baptized? We would be delighted to baptize you here at this church. Um, come and talk to me afterward and, and let's arrange for that to happen. But I would say this too, if you are a Christian and you have been baptized, then cherish your baptism. How often do you think of your baptism? How often do you look back and think, wow, look what God in His providence and mercy has done for me and applying to me a sign that marks me as one who belongs to Him. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful statement about who you are in this world. It's a statement about your identity. And here's the way this guy, Vanderzee, says it. Our sense of identity plays a key role in our behavior, our psychological health, and our spiritual well-being. Baptism as a sacrament of identity says to us every day, you are a son or daughter of God. You are loved. In your identification with Christ, the true and perfect human, God is well pleased with you. That's what your baptism, the symbolism of your baptism says to you. So, 
This is not teaching baptismal regeneration. If you're thinking, friend, I've been baptized, therefore I'm going to heaven, you need to turn from that understanding and trust Jesus and give yourself to him, place faith in him, because that's the only thing that's going to save, only the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on your behalf and your personal acceptance of that. So that's what the passage doesn't teach. Now, you're probably thinking, well, all he's talking about is what this doesn't teach. What does it teach? <laughs> what, what does this passage actually mean? And I'm summing it up with the title that I've given to this sermon that I haven't even mentioned yet as I get ready to close. <laughs> all authorities subject to him. Here, in spite of whether you agree with me on these details that I've tried to unpack and clarify, Here's what I think we can all agree on. The overall thrust of the passage teaches us that all authorities in the universe are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. And, and notice how this happens. If you look at the very start of the passage, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sin. It says he was put to death in the flesh you know, what a, what a kind of a sad beginning to this. We're, we're talking about the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus. What, what a setback that must have seemed like to Jesus' followers and disciples when they saw their Messiah hanging on the cross dead. The whole Messiah salvation project in their minds, they must have thought, it's over, it's done. I'm so disappointed that my Savior is dead. It just must have seemed like everything is going backwards now. And, and maybe you feel that way when you look at the world. You look at the way things are going, and you just think, things are getting so much worse in this world. It seems like the kingdom of God is receding. It seems like the church is dying. It seems like everything that's right is being called wrong, and everything that's wrong is being called right. And you're looking, and you're discouraged. And you're finding yourself thinking, you know, I feel like I'm one of the only ones who actually believe in this Jesus and follow him and, and, and love him. Think of what Noah must have felt like. He building this ark. And God says, build this because I'm going to flood the earth. And here's the whole world walking by Noah and laughing at him. And do you notice the emphasis in the text? Only a few, it says, were saved in verse 20. In which a few, just eight persons Eight persons in the days of Noah were saved. Everybody else was condemned. And maybe you feel that way. You just feel like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one in my family who believes in Jesus. And I get together with them for Christmas, and I just feel like they don't even get it. Or maybe your family is a bunch of Christians, and now you're about ready to go back to work and in your workplace. No one's a Christian. You're the only one. You're about to go back to school. You're going to be in the classroom. Your professor's an atheist, and all your classmates, they're all unbelievers. You're the only one. In your neighborhood, you just feel outnumbered by all the people around you. You feel like you're the only one, and you're discouraged. That's how the passage begins, but look at the very last verse. What it says is that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, 
authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It turns out that what seemed like a defeat was not what we thought. That defeat, by God's grace, was turned into a glorious victory. Jesus was raised from the dead, and at this moment, he reigns over the entire universe, and every single power and authority in this earth is subject to him. He is in charge. He is in the driver's seat. And he is going to come again, and he's going to make everything right. The spiritual setbacks, the discouragement that you see in the world, in your life, friends, those are not the last word. That, that, that's the encouragement here. All authorities are subject to him, and you can rest in that. I remember when, with my family, we used to go to Florida very often on vacation. We'd get in our van and we'd get in the station wagon. <clears throat> my dad would be driving. And off we would go, and it'd be about a 16-hour drive. And, you know, there were lots of setbacks that we'd face on the way down to Florida. <laughs> Remember one time we ran into an ice storm in northern Florida, just about a quarter inch of ice on the road, and it just completely confused everybody. Trucks sliding off the road, traffic going about 10 miles an hour on I-75. There was another time we were going to Florida. We had luggage on the roof of our station wagon, and the luggage rack came loose and the suitcase flew off the top of the car. I remember looking out the back window and just seeing the suitcase just boom right on the road. Everything spewing out, cars running over all of our stuff. That was a setback. That was a major setback in our getting to Florida and getting back home. But you know what? I just remember all the time I'm in the car, what I'm thinking is my dad is driving this car, and he's going to get us home. He's going to get us to our destination. I just, I just knew that, and I rested in that. And you can rest in that, too, today. Jesus lives, and he reigns, and all authorities are subject to him. I think it's time to end. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank and praise you, Lord God, for this wonderful declaration that you live and reign. You are worthy of our trust. Lord, even as we look at the scriptures and we get confused by it sometimes, Father, help us not to be discouraged by that, but to run to what is clear and to rest our hope and trust on the good news that you give to us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>